0: Well, today we're finishing our series we've called Pursuit. We've been following people's lives in the Bible whose pursuit of God changed their life. Not a a momentary event, not not even a season, but their pursuit of God across years. We're kind of summarizing these people's lives and their pursuit of God over the years changed their life and we've learned from uh, so far, Abraham was the man the Bible said was a friend of God. Last week, we looked at Moses, who was the man who walked with God face to face. Today, we're going to finish the series talking about David, who the Bible says is a man after God's own heart. Now, there's more written in the Bible about David than Abraham or Moses or practically any other character, maybe other than Jesus or, or a few others. In the Old Testament, 66 chapters are given to David's life. Sixty-six chapters in the New Testament, 59 references to King David. Of the Psalms, David was a songwriter, and of the 150 Psalms, we know for sure 73 of them he wrote. He may have written more than that. Seventy-three of them have been ascribed directly to David. Now, I'm sure if David would have known how public his life would have been, he might have been a little bit more intimidated if he'd have known 3,000 years later, here we are, still talking about the details of his life. After 3,000 years, we know practically everything about David, you know, but his blood type. We know the color of his hair. We know his complexion. We know his childhood. We know what he ate. We know his love life. We know his strengths. We know his weaknesses. We know his public sin. We know his private sin. And when Samuel, who was a prophet, was talking to King Saul, this is kind of how the story of David uh, comes along. Uh, Saul is the king before David, and David follows him. But Saul has turned evil, and his heart's turned away from God, and he's disobeying God. So God sends the prophet Samuel to go tell Saul what's going to happen. And then you can look in 1 Samuel 13, 14. This is kind of how it went down. But now your kingdom... Uh, Samuel's talking to Saul But now your kingdom will not endure The Lord has sought out a man After his own heart In other words, and you're not that guy You know, you've turned dark You've turned evil, you've done a lot of bad things You've disobeyed me But so now God's going to replace you Because he sought out a man after his own heart And appointed him ruler of the people Because you've not kept the Lord's command Isn't that an interesting phrase? Man after God's own heart Man after God's own heart. What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Uh, when we take road trips, you know, I, I don't think, I don't know why we don't do this while we're in town, but oftentimes when we're, as a family, driving on the road, uh, there's a little button on your radio that we use, and I don't know why we only use it when we're driving a long way. It's called scan. You ever, you ever hit that button? Right? Because you go, you know, you run in and out of signals, you run into a station, and then the station changes, and you go to another station, and, you know, you can't stay on one station long because you're traveling. Get you that little scan button, and then, you know, a song will come on, and there's four of us, so, you know, no four of us ever like the same, oh, I like that song, don't turn it back, and you can't find it, you're already gone, you ever, anybody ever do that on a road trip? Scan? It's an evil little button. You hit the little scan button and and what happens is is your, your radio in your car is scanning for a radio station and when it finds a strong enough frequency, it locks onto it and then it broadcasts that signal through your speakers. And then you hear whatever the station is playing. That's what this word after means in Hebrew. It means akin to, similar to, easily recognized as the same type. It means looking for, searching for, with a connection to. What it does not mean is perfectly identical or an exact copy. It's like that little scan button when you press it. It's it's scanning the airwaves. It's scanning the radio waves. It's searching and it's looking for a strong signal to lock onto. A signal that it recognizes that it's compatible with and it will lock onto it. This is what David's life is like. David was searching for God. He was scanning for God. He was going after God. And, and as he pursued Him, he locked on and went after Him. And at the core of everything David did was a desire to, to, to go after God in spite of all his failures. When David met Goliath, the biggest motivation, he had to even fight Goliath. Remember that? The big giant that would stand up every day and call out to Israel and say, you know, come, come fight me. And, uh, you know, everybody else said, I'm out. I mean, this guy's, this guy's like LeBron James on drugs. I mean, this guy's he's huge. I'm out. Everybody's out. But then the giant started to, Goliath started to curse God's people and God. And David's like 16. He's not even allowed to fight yet. He's just bringing food to the soldiers. And he says, wait a minute. You can't allow this to go on. It was his love for God that motivated him to say, who is this Philistine that would come and and challenge God and God's people? He's not going to do that. He might kill me, but I'm going." It was his love for God, that it was his pursuit of God even as a young man that started that. When David brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, uh, the Bible says that he had taken a lot of his kingly clothes off and had these other normal clothes on, and he was dancing wildly in the streets because he was celebrating, excited, and worshiping. And his wife looked out the window and said, Hmm, you guys know what that means? Hmm. Boy, it's loaded with meaning, isn't it? It usually follows certain looks, too. Hmm. And she says, how undignified. No king should act that way. David didn't care. He wasn't dancing for her. He was dancing for God. He was a man after God's heart. He wrote 73 psalms we mentioned. One of them says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You know this one? And all that is within me. God, everything. So whether on the battlefield or in the palace or in the temple, David chased after God's heart because there was something in God's heart that, that he, he had locked onto, to and wanted to be like him. There was a, he was a man after going after God's own heart, connected. They were paired together. So if you have something to write with, I want to uh, invite you to take a few notes this morning, maybe on your smartphone or you've got a bulletin or something you want to write on. Let me give you, let me just, there's probably a dozen, there's probably at least a dozen or more. If you look into the life of David, things we could learn about being a person after God's own heart, going after God. Let me just suggest three this morning. Here's the first one, brokenness. If you pursue God, you will experience brokenness. If you, if you go after Him, if you pursue Him across the seasons of your life, if you pursue God, you will experience internal and personal brokenness. See, when, when you go after God, something starts to happen. When you scan the airwaves, you search for God, you lock onto Him and you say, that is what I want, and you, and you make intentional steps of pursuing God in your life, then something starts to happen. You begin to realize two things. You begin to realize the distance between you and God. In other words, God, I want you on or pursue you, and you turn and start to pursue him, then you go, wait a minute, he's farther away than I thought. Or I'm further away from him than I thought I was. I thought I was closer to God than this. The other thing you realize, other than distance, is difference. You realize that I'm not as much like God as I thought I was. There's some stuff I hadn't got worked out yet. There's some evil motivations. There's some evil desires. There's some some bad stuff working on the inside of me, and I didn't realize how bad off I was. Isn't that what happened to Isaiah? Isaiah 6? He gets a revelation of God, and he gets a revelation of himself, and he says, I'm further than I thought, and I'm not nearly as much like you as I thought I was. Those two things, when you you pursue God, you begin to become aware of how far you are and how different you are, how distant and how different. And what happens is, is those two things start to break your heart. You say, God, I realize I'm further than I thought, but I want to be closer. I realize that I'm more different than you than I thought, and I don't want to be different. I want to be like you. And those start to break they work the work of brokenness inside you, and that brokenness allows God, ironically, allows God to begin a deeper work inside you. It's like rolling out a red carpet and welcoming the Holy Spirit in. And he begins to do a deeper, more profound work inside your life to ironically draw you closer now. To make you more like him, to transform you and make you more like him. Now let's look at it in David's life. In 1 Kings 15:5. This is a, a, a summary of David's life. Let's look and see how it worked in his life. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Remember that's what uh, God told Saul through Samuel that Saul you didn't do what was right now I'm going to go find me somebody to do what's right. Alright? This is kind of the end of David's life kind of a summary. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord thank God and had, and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life. Fantastic! If there was a period but there's not. Except, there's always an except, isn't there? Except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Is, isn't that an interesting scripture? David had done what was right and had not failed to obey God all the days of his life except for that one little itty-bitty time. And boy, was it a doozy. There's that little matter of committing adultery with another man's wife and when that man was out at war fighting for David and then David deciding that the best way to fix that was to cover it up and to hide it and to pretend it didn't happen and so he sent Bathsheba's husband out to war told all the rest of his men when he gets out there on the front line everybody else retreat and leave him out there so he'll die so David in, in, in effect enacted Uriah's uh, murder So he has lied, he has committed adultery, he has murdered, and then when Uriah has died, now after the time of grieving, David takes Bathsheba in as his wife, and nobody will know the difference, right? Outside of that, everything he did was good. It's the little thing, really. Now I'm just going to tell you, this, this has the sense of being one of the great contradictions in Scripture. If you're honest, you've got to work a little bit to wrap your heart and your brain around this. How on earth could this guy who murdered, who lied, who stole another man's wife, who had him killed, who took her on as his own wife, how could a guy like this ever be called a man after God's own heart? In what way was he a man after God's word? God's not a cheater, God's not a liar, and God's not a murderer. In what way is he like God at all? How is he going after him? God doesn't operate in darkness like David did, hiding and fixing things behind, sweeping it under the rug. God operates out in the light. How is he like anything like God? Then we read in Psalm 51, we get a glimpse of the brokenness in David's heart and the consequences that hung over him. I went back this weekend and and read the story. Deep, painful consequences hung over David and his family because of this sin. Psalm 51, we read... David's brokenness in it. Verse 3 and five through 5. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now listen to verse 5. This is critical. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What is David saying? Is he saying it's not my fault I was born this way? What is he saying? Is he saying, I inherited this, it's not me? Is he saying the devil may be doing it? What is he saying? Did you catch that last line? I was sinful at birth? No. David has begun to grasp the full reality of his own darkness. David has begun to realize he is more capable of, of evil things than he ever dreamed. David has begun to realize how unlike God he is and how far... He's begun to realize the distance and the difference. So what's David's prayer now? Psalm 51.10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, I'm broke. And I'm a long way from you. Fix this because I can't. Now now let me give you a couple thoughts about brokenness from David's life that are pertinent to us. Your response... During sin, during your own sin, your response reveals everything about your heart. Don't tell me how godly you are when you do everything right. Everybody's godly when they do everything right. (laughs) Right? Because the temptation is to build your your righteousness off your own good action. And that's evil too. But, But from the outside, it looks better. But tell me, how do you respond when you blow it? When you mess up, when you do evil, when you do dark things, when you do bad things, when you shock yourself with something you never thought you were capable of doing. How's that? How does that turn out? How do you respond in the middle of that? I can tell you how many of us tend to respond. Our tendency is to do what Adam and Eve did. I know because it was in the first man and woman. What did they do? They went and hid. Right? Oh, no. I wasn't supposed to eat that fruit. Here comes God. Let's go the other way. And I see that happen in people's lives. I've seen it happen in my life. There's something inside our default sin nature. When we do something wrong, we tend to want to hide it. We want to hide it from God. We want to get away from God. I've watched people. I've struggled in my own life at times when I would do something bad. I w- I would, I, if I had my devotional life going well, I'd back off and say, Well, I can't do devotions now. Not after all that. I mean, I can't just go in and pretend like nothing happened, can I? I can't read the Bible now. God doesn't have anything to say to me now. Does. I can't pray now. You know, you, you ever have a time in your life you, do, you did something, you did something really bad, and then you had a great need, and you said, "Well, I can't bring that need to God now." I mean, not after what I did. And I've seen, and I've watched people for twenty years. I've watched people. They they ingest a certain amount of sin in their life. Next thing you know, you don't see them at church for three or four or five weeks or two months or six months. Why? Well, I mean, I can't come to worship now. I can't go and pretend like I don't know what to do. And our tendency is to withdraw from God because of the guilt, try to work the guilt out so we can come back. But if you could work it out, you wouldn't need God. You can't work it out. It never works that way. It never works that way. And, and when I was preparing for this message, I, I really felt like the Holy Spirit put something on my heart I just want to say right now, and we'll talk about it as we pray today. When I was preparing this message, I felt like the Holy Spirit put on my heart that there, there's somebody in this uh, first service. We had two people respond to this, but, and, and maybe that was it. I don't know. Somebody at church today, three years ago, you, you, you did something awful. You did something bad. You did something dark, and you've been hiding from God. You've been dancing around in a way, and maybe you read your Bible. Maybe you come to church. I don't know. Maybe you've slipped in here, and you had not even been in three years. I don't know. But three years ago something happened and now the Holy Spirit is saying to you the door is open and it's been open and you can't resolve your own guilt. You can't work it out. Come to Him. He wants to help you today. But, but what you have to do, and I'll show you this in David's own repentance, you have to come to Him. See, I think sometimes there are people, there, even though we say, I want to be saved, I want to go to heaven, I want to be a Christian, there are compromises we make because of our own sin. We say, after what I've done, I cannot live the Christian life the way God intended for me to live. Or after what I've done, I, that kind of, I wish I could live that, like I see old so and so over here live that. And if I could do that, but boy, after what I've done, they've never done what I've done. As if our relationship with God is based on what we've done anyway, it's based on what Jesus did. But, but, but what, what, you've got to, what you've got to get straight in your mind is, look, there are people in this room. There are murderers in this room and thieves in this room and, and racists in this room. What I mean by that is there are people that have committed all kinds of atrocities and awful sins. Don't tell me how your relationship is with God when you do everything right. Tell me how it is when you do something really wrong. When you really mess it up, when you really, there are adulterers, I'm just telling you, there are people inside this room that have done all kinds of things. But here's what I want you to know this morning. David pursued God through his own sin. Not in it, but through it. He continued to come after. That reveals a man after God's own heart. What reveals a person after God's own heart? is not a person that never sins, because you, like, can't. And I can't. But what does reveal a person after God's heart is what you do when you do. Do you hide? Do you run away? Do you pretend it didn't happen? Do you withdraw from God? Do you withdraw from church? Do you withdraw from devotions? Do you turn the channel off a Christian station to something else? And you say, forget it, I've blown it now, there's no hope now. We try to work our own guilt. Most of us can't deal with our own guilt enough to pursue God when we sin. And what that reveals is that we don't trust God. I don't trust God to deal with my sin. I don't trust God to deal with my guilt. And I've got to live with some lower version of Christianity now after what I've done. Right? It's quiet today. Right? But repenting is turning away from your sin and toward God is a form of pursuing God that every Christian needs to learn. Because every Christian does something wrong. Sometime. And the way you pursue God, the way that you come after Him, is when you do, you come at Him with it. Not run from Him, not hide from Him, not try to work it out on your own. There's no way. David pursued God through his own repentance of turning away from the sin and toward God. Look, brokenness doesn't have to be found through sin, though. But it's got to be found. It must be found. I'll give you an an example of this. When... um, in the late 90s, Stacy and I had an opportunity to go to a missionary retreat in Europe. And we'd never been to anything like this in our life, not because we were missionaries. We were youth pastors, but they invited us to come and work with the missionaries' teenagers uh, during the, to have, kind of have a retreat for them. So we did. So we were in the Netherlands, and all the missionaries from northern Europe and western Europe came together. About 150 missionaries came together at this conference at, at the hotel a retreat. And uh, I had no idea what those missionaries were dealing with. I just didn't, I, we'd never been to Europe, didn't understand. My wife had years before. But I, didn't, I had no concept, had never understood. And I don't know if you know that, Europe is an incredibly dark place. What do I mean by dark? It, it, is, it is dark. I mean, there's, there's, it's oppressive and dark and sinful. And uh, there's a lot of incredible cultural things about Europe, there's a lot of great history in Europe, but the present state of spirituality is, is uh, particularly in that time, was at a low spot. I th- we've had some signs of new life coming since then. But boy, in that era that we were there, it was rough. And so you have these 150 missionaries scattered all over these countries in Europe who had come together for this retreat. I had no idea what that was doing for them. That was like water on a thirsty person. Man, they were out there laboring in these cultures and among people that were lost, blind, separated, far, far, far away from God. And so one missionary we met, their little daughter was 12. They were missionaries uh, to France. They were missionaries to France. And that 12-year-old girl was the only Christian young person she knew. She didn't have another 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old at her school, at her church, in her neighborhood, anywhere. She knew no other Christians that were even close to her age, boy or girl, nobody. And so you can imagine what these folks are out there laboring in, the sacrifice that they're bringing. Man, remember when we walked in that little ballroom, and uh, it was a, a worship time. And we walked in there, and I was literally caught off guard. I was overwhelmed at what I experienced when I walked in that room. These, I, when, so we were standing there, and I said, Stacy, I feel like on a spiritual level, we're walking through the redwood forest. It's like these people are giants in the kingdom of God, and we are sort of walking through these giants. They had sacrificed. They had given so much. They were laboring in places where you didn't see much fruit very fast. They were just sowing seeds in faith, sowing seeds in faith. And uh, as, they, as the lady up front began to play the piano and worship, and those missionaries, it, it, was, uh, it was, there's nothing demonstrative or, or extroverted about it, but there was an extreme depth in that room that touched me. And those missionaries would stand, and you would watch some begin to cry. They had come from dark places, and to enter that room, a safe place, where they could stand together and worship God. I'm telling you, God met those missionaries there in a way that I've rarely experienced in my life. And I I thought about that and I wondered, what is it? What is it that I feel in this room? Here's what I think I felt. Those missionaries, there may have been a few, but the majority weren't feeling broken because they were living in sin. They weren't repenting. They had come to brokenness in their own life because they had been faced with a challenge of of sharing the gospel with Europe and it was absolutely overwhelming. And And in the reality of that challenge, they could look and say, Oh God, I need you. I'm further away from you, more distant than I need to be. And I am more different than you than I have to be to do this. God, would you please come? And that holy, that holy calling pressed those missionaries up against a challenge that broke them. And you could feel that brokenness. You don't have to come to brokenness through sin. You can. But you do have to come to it. Pursuit of God will cause... So I've got a question for you this morning. When's the last time you experienced personal brokenness over the distance that you are from God and over the difference in your life between you and Him? When's the last time you experienced brokenness over those things? They broke your heart. They made you sad. Broken over the reality of how unlike Him that you are. How much you need Him. See, your awareness of your distance and difference Equals your brokenness. Brokenness. The second thought is humility. Humility. If you're a student of the Bible. You'll remember how King Saul spent years trying to kill David. On two occasions. David had the opportunity to kill Saul and to take the throne. And David chose to be obedient to God rather than become king. Now this was really tough on David for a few reasons. Saul was trying to kill him. Now, I don't know (laughs) how that might feel. Look, David wasn't a sissy. David was a a type A general. He was a warrior. He was a a, a fighter. I don't know if you've ever competed with somebody who's like a type A all-in athlete. Man, it's everything you can do to talk them off the wall. They're in competition mode, baby. It's own Live or die, it's us or them. Right? I mean, they're geared up high, right? What are you playing? You know, paper football. Somebody's going to die. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, everybody punching your husband. I get it. I understand. My wife's just too far away to punch me. That's the only difference. But look, I don't know how it would feel to you for somebody to keep trying to kill you. You have a manhunt on from the king who's got his army and his soldiers and he's hunting you and he's hunting you and you're living in a cave like an animal and you have the opportunity twice to kill him. Look, I, I'm, I'm punching that guy and I'm calling it self-defense. He, tra- he shot me first. What else could I do, right? That's what David, that's what he was fighting. David had killed thousands of people in his lifetime. What's the difference? This guy tries to kill me, I'm going to kill him back. The other reason that made this so hard is that David, God had already told David, hey, by the way, the king that's king don't need to be king. You need to be king. You're going to be the next king. And I, I've anointed you. I've called you. And as soon as we get him out of the way, you're going to be the next king. If I'm David, I say, well, let me help you out with that. I can get him out of the way. That's no problem. Send a couple of the boys over. You know, it's no big deal. Right? This is, this is amazing. God had already told David he was going to be the king. So David may be thinking, maybe the way that's going to happen is for Saul to die and I become king. And by the way, that is what happened. When Saul died, David did become king and Saul was murdered. Or he fell on a sword anyway. Killed himself. But here's the deal. David could say, maybe the reason God has made me so good at killing people, and David had killed thousands of people in battle, Maybe God has been honing my skill for such a time as this. And maybe what God wants me to do, maybe he's made me good at this because he wants, to, and he wants me to do it. And so, and so I'll do it. Now, now watch this. Despite all that sound logic, David refused to step over that line of authority. I don't know if I could have done that. And by the way, it was a very short time period of just 20 years. For 20 years, David lived with the reality that God has called you to be king, but you can't be king now because that guy won't die. And, if this, and by the way, he's evil. So there would be a lot of ways for David to justify this thing. But look, why, why does it really matter, right? Uh, he's got to die for this thing to move on. How, why does it matter how he dies? It mattered to God. It mattered to God how he died. It mattered to God how it happened. Somehow, somehow, David didn't rise up in pride. And here, here's where you have to look. David had every reason. David was handsome. David was a skilled musician. He wrote 73 of the Psalms. He was the Lord's anointed ruler. He was a triumphant warrior. He was a national hero. There's actually a song that the Israelites sang, you know, that Saul had killed, I think it was his thousands, and David had killed his tens of thousands. So David had killed ten times as many people as Saul, which thrilled Saul. I'm sure that's where part of the problem came from. James 4, 6 says, But he gives us more grace. That's why Scripture says this, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. If you walk in pride, this is the point I want to make here. If you walk in pride, God is working against you. That's what the Bible says. If you walk in pride, God is actually active in opposition to you. He opposes you. You can't be pursuing God and God working against you at the same time. Pride is Satan's way. Humility is God's way. Now, God had already told David he was supposed to be king, right? So who cares how it happened? God cared. Listen, you'll find at at least as much temptation in your life on how you do stuff As what you do. You'll be tempted to do the right things the wrong way as much as you'll be tempted to do the wrong thing. To get this done the wrong way. This is what Jesus' temptation in the wilderness was. Jesus is in the wilderness fasting and Satan comes to him. What's one of the temptations? Throw yourself down from here. And angels will swoop up underneath you and get you and put a Superman cape on you. They'll fly you back to the top, and all the people will say, "Hey, listen, you're God. I know you're God. You're Jesus. I know you're. Je- I have no problem with that. Let's just do something cool. I get it. I get it. You're God. I'm not. You're cool. I'm not. I'm the devil. I, I'm, I'm cool with all that. We can really agree on this thing. You just do something spectacular and show all the people that you're God, and and we're good. And, and, and what was Jesus' problem with that? Jesus' problem was not revealing to people that he was God. He just wasn't going to do it that way. He wasn't going to do God's work Satan's way. Even if it was God's work. Even if the end was good, it did not justify the means to him. If, so Jesus' way was not in the spectacular It was in humility and servanthood and sacrificing his life on the cross. If you want to pursue God, you've got to use God's method. What's God's method? Humility. Unfortunately, I think too often, or sometimes at least, Christian TV has been an example of doing God's work Satan's way. Elaborate and arrogant and, and carrying on, we're going to win the world by showing them that re, we are royalty, the money, and the fame, and the showmanship. And I'm just telling you, it's not God's way. Even if you're doing God's work, it matters if you don't do it His way. He has a way. And it seems to me like it's driven away as many as it's reached. If, if you want to pursue God, you have to do it God's way. What's His way? Humility. So at work, I mean, you can't, you can't steal from the company and you can't steal time from the company and you can't, you can't hurt other people's career in order to get ahead. You have to operate in humility. That's God's way. Even if it's the right end, even if it's the right result, even if it's the right place to get to. In your marriage, you can't function that way in relationship. You have to do it God's way. It's very important to God that we do things His way. That's what the Bible says. If you will humble yourself, God will raise you up. If you raise yourself up, God will humble you. It's very important. Humility. Brokenness and humility were key ingredients in David's pursuit of God. Here's the last one. Priority. Priority. The number one priority of David's life was his relationship with God. Psalm 51 says, Do not cast me from your presence. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. After his sin with Bathsheba, it would have been very easy for David to have begged for God to do a lot of things. He could have said, oh God, for 20 years I lived in caves and hid from the demon-possessed Saul trying to figure out how it's going to become me. For 20 years I served you that way. Please don't take the throne from me now. He could have said, don't take Bathsheba away from me. He could have asked for a lot of things. What does he ask for? He says, I don't want to lose your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. He couldn't think. He lived in caves. He had drank from creeks. He had lived out in the wilderness like an animal. And the only thing he could say, you can have the palace, you can have the throne, you can have the people, you can have the fame, you can have the money, but please do not take your presence away from me, God man after god's own heart it wasn't his perfection that made him a man after god's own heart it was his pursuit relentless i can remember uh maybe you don't know this part about our life uh my wife and i lived in uh about two miles our church was about two miles from the gulf of mexico uh at the time hurricane katrina struck uh And a 30, whatever, 34-foot wave struck the shore. Our house was a mile from the gulf. And about halfway uh, between our house and the water, everything uh, was destroyed. I mean, it literally looked like somebody had taken a toy box and thrown stuff out on the beach for miles. The destruction area was the size of Great Britain. It was that large of a destruction zone. And uh, I can remember the first night that we... Went back to our house. It was just a few days after Katrina, and uh, I was laying there in bed that night. uh, And and, I mean, we could, you know, barely get to our house. Trees were down. All kind of crazy things were going through my head. I was wondering, you know, I wonder if there are people that we haven't found yet. Communication was down. Other than going house to house, you didn't know where people were. I was wondering, are there people that we know that have passed, or there people that are trapped, or the people drowned? you know, uh, uh, what are we going to do, how are we going to, where do I start, how do we rebuild, how do we move forward, my mind was just so heavy racing with all this stuff and so it was still dark, I didn't get much sleep that night and I went out on our back patio and I sat in a little (laughs) old broken lawn chair that survived, I sat down in that little chair and uh, every direction I could look was pitch black. It, there were no there was no power, there were no street lights, there were no lights coming from anything, and it was as dark as dark can be and I was sitting in the darkness on our back porch and I just was praying god lord i i I need you I don't know what to do I don't know which way to go i don't know I don't know what's going to happen now lord i I don't even know where to start I don't even know what to say I don't even know what to pray I don't even know what to ask for what what would I ask for at a time like this? And as the sun broke the sky that morning and and illuminated the back patio, I could begin to see the destruction: houses, walls on houses. Our neighbor's entire back wall had fallen out of their house. Their front window had been shattered, and rain had and driven in. And, roofs were damaged as far as you could see and wooden fences that used to make nice little hedge areas around people's houses. As far as my eye could see in every direction, I could see through backyards. for Dozens of houses, I could see through backyards, I could just see and as the sun came up, plants were twisted and dead and ah, it looked like a nuclear bomb had gone off. And I sat there in that little chair and as the sun came up, I was just saying, God, what do I do? And all I can say to you is God's presence came and met me in that moment. And, and He just began to overwhelm me with His goodness and His mercy. and his, He was just there. I don't know how else to say it. He was just there. And I, I, I have a hard time describing for you in that moment how valuable His presence became to me. So you know, Lord, more than rebuilding any of this or is the church going to survive or how do we start over? Lord more than i was just coming to grips with what had happened lord more than anything else god's presence began to I, I know what david says when he says create a steadfast spirit inside me god's presence began to fill my inner man and fill my life and begin to become so valuable to me at that moment i had this realization that what i really need is not to rebuild this or that or to fix that or to go over here or to, what i really need god is you Man, unlike hardly any time of my life, what became so clear to me in that moment is God, I need you. I need you. Maybe it was the distance in the difference. I don't know. But I became aware that I needed him. Without God and his presence, our lives are empty, void, flat. We're existing, we're surviving, we're getting through, we're going through the motions. Our purpose and our passion lives in His presence. His presence energizes those things. So I want you to stand with me if you would and our prayer team to come. And I just want us to spend three or four minutes this morning in prayer. If you'd stand and find a place that you